Welcome, you singularly spectacular podience. Welcome. As my podience is comprised of individual carbon-based life forms, thus comprised of a singular podience, so too does an organic, non-white-collar synergy occur. As the individual energy you project starts swirling and whirling into a communal tapestry of ideas, thoughts, and palpable living, breathing, pulsating spirit, you complete the essence of Falsetto Prophet. I am delighted to be here today to speak on a topic we have both tiptoed around like a cat burglar, like a fairy, like Gene Kelly, lurched and crept on the fringe of. Today, we cannonball full bore into the pool of leadership, and the ensuing rippling waves will be resounding throughout the audible halls of this Kimohawk Chateau. Chateau. Now that is a fancy word for a fancy home. Make no mistake, it is a house of royalty, as the refined, well-researched, well-polished falsetto profit knowledge provides incalculable advice. Leadership is such an integral component of the white-collar machinery, and it should be both energetic, well-oiled, but also experienced and sagacious enough to actively demonstrate empathetic, wise reconciliation to unanticipated frustrations, complications, and complexities that undoubtedly arise throughout any corporate machination-linked machinery. I could talk leadership woes and lordly heroes for eons, but I condense this plentitude of both opinion and quasi-fact-based supports into a navigable length, much to your auditory delight. I was just having a conversation with my father-in-law the other day, and I was talking about how when you're talking to people these days, the millennials, these up-and-comers, you're lucky if you can secure their attention for more than eight minutes at a time, probably even less. There was a time where you would read a novel, like a paperback-bound novel. You would read it top to bottom, left to right, cover to cover, and you had minimal distraction. So you could read, and then you could process that information. But now, they have condensed the merits of a long novel into a five-second TikTok post. What does that say for the ability to retain information? Because I also recently learned that if you want to process something properly, and if you want to be able to retain what you've read or researched for any length of time, you have to be able to convert your short-term memory understanding into the bucket of the long-term memory. And one of the only ways to do that is to eliminate distraction while you're processing something. Some of my fellow loyal audience members have imparted to me that, for example, when they listen to Kimohawk sessions while they're at the gym pumping iron or driving in vigorous traffic in Austin, sometimes they have to listen to the episode a second time when they're not inundated with distractions or bombarded with side projects because I construct these episodes with some research and with some dry humor and with some intellect. I'm not tooting my own trombone. I'm just saying that this is not for someone to listen to while they're engaged in 15 other projects. Because I'm hoping that you're able to extract the gems and the booty and the resources that I have set into the ground for you. I find that if I can keep an episode a certain length, that aids and abets your understanding of the material because of the, we'll just call it the clock on people's attention span. Defining some terms of the title. 
Let's call it Tale of the Title. You remember whenever you watch a boxing match or a UFC fight, they call it Tale of the Tape? Have you ever wondered what Tale of the Tape means? Well, it's an idiom. It is used when comparing things, especially in sports. It comes from boxing, where the fighters would be measured with a tape measure before a fight. It has since grown into things like height, weight, whether they have a reach advantage, etc. But I should have been calling it, when I get to defining the terms and the titles of my episode, I should have been calling it Tale of the Title this whole time. Living, audience, begets learning, dear listeners. What is the title of chapter 39? Well, right here, right now, you will get it. Chapter 39, White Collar, Black Belt. White Collar, Empty Suit. How to Embrace the Disgrace of an Inferior Superior. Empty Suit Definition. It is a noun. A prominent person regarded as lacking substance, personality, or ability. Semicolon, an ineffectual executive. Do you know any empty suits, audience? Off the top of my head, several come to mind. Camo, Freck, Grandma, Tad. The list goes on. But if you can think of someone who is on paper in a position of power or authority, but they lack substance, personality, or ability, imagine if they describe themselves that way on a dating app. You know, I have $6 million in my bank account, and I drive a Maserati, but I lack substance, personality, and ability. Well, that's a piss-poor example, Falsetto, because they will still have to beat the ladies and the men off with a stick, am I right? I find that to be disgraceful. Hence the disgrace of an inferior superior. Another term that is similar to empty suit, which I know you've heard in politics, is lame duck, also a noun. This is an official, it could be even the president, in the final period of office, after the election of a successor, i.e. an ineffectual or unsuccessful person or thing. They no longer have power for all intents and purposes, but they still have the title. Now in the workplace, there's a term for this in the workplace is emeritus, which is you've like a retired, but you're allowed to retain your title as an honor. It's something similar in title only, but you don't really wield any legitimate power. Now, instead of lame duck, I recommend calling this individual or individuals that you encounter at work lame F stars duck. That way you get the rhyme scheme as well. What is an inferior superior? Well, to your host, Mr. Falsetto, it is an otherwise capable carbon-based life form who allows their status, position, and title to weaken them, dumb them down, ultimately concocting one lame, lazy, lethargic life form. Whoa, look at that alliteration. It's kind of like V for Vendetta when he drops like 15 V adjectives in a row. The villainy, etc. They do not have to be inferior per se, but in an almost unintended and insidious way, they are inferior through and through. Does this sound vaguely familiar or conspicuously familiar? To me, when you are a leader, you are on the world stage, like an actor or a celebrity of sorts. Act the part. I am hard on those who chose to be in the public spotlight. Whether appointed or voted in, you should behave in a way that people will respect you. The moment you become a manager, a middle manager, an M&M, or a chief financial officer, it doesn't matter. Somewhere along the way, you made a voluntary decision to be in a position where you directly impact the lives of 5, 10, 15, 150, 10,000 people around you in very direct ways and very tertiary ways. The point is that you have an impact and you, like a teacher or a Boy Scout troop leader or a priest or a coach or anybody that is seen as a figure, you have a real opportunity 
to win over the hearts and minds, be a leader, lead through example, institute all of the life experiences that you've had to spare others from having to make your mistakes. You are in a real position to mold the minds of those in your vicinity. If I was in a leadership role, I would take it very seriously. And you wouldn't want to ask the question every day because then you would just drive yourself insane. Like, for example, I've heard of a lot of celebrities intentionally not reading comments on whatever their service is that they're providing the populace because all of the negative comments can get you into a negative mental space. But I would say if you're in a managerial role, you should be asking yourself this question when you look in the rearview mirror before you get out of your car to enter the building or when you're looking in the bathroom mirror before you plop your butt down for your virtual position. But the question you should be posing to yourself is, am I a good leader? Have I earned the respect of those that are looking up to me for guidance, advice, tutelage? Am I someone who is observably changing the lives for the better of all those people that I encounter in my sphere of influenza, if you will? These are valid questions. And if a manager is not asking those questions to themselves, then they are narcissistic, they are self-centered, or they are just too lethargic and lackadaisical to give a shiz. These are problems. Is your company replete with or deplete of mental resources? It is incumbent upon you to rinse, repeat, and F-stars defeat those inferior superiors. How do you know when you are in the presence of inferior superiors? It is when you ask witty questions at meetings and are greeted with shizzy answers. Be an unmanageable, intangible audience, not a disadvantageable, manageable manager. Why do I employ use of such wicked wordplay? So that you remember my words. It takes time to construct these clever rhyming phrases. I hope that they are received as intended. Wow, we are on chapter 39 now. We are firmly entrenched on the eve of episode 40, a real milestone. Kimo Hawk tradition dictates we lay some quotes on you to blanket and soothe your ear canals. You want it, audience. You want these quotes. You need these quotes. <laughs> and that's why you will receive them. Christmas came early this episode for you, dear listeners. The mediocre teacher tells. The good teacher explains. The superior teacher demonstrates. The great teacher inspires. William Arthur Ward. It's hard to leave a cavalry charge if you think you look funny on a horse. Adlai E. Stevenson. I'm reminded of that great flick, Unforgiven, that early 90s Western directed by and starring Clint Eastwood, where he's a hog farmer and he's trying to get back on his horse. It's a rough introduction showing that he has not ridden a horse in a while. For those aficionados of the Western genre, watching that was unusual. And you're thinking, okay, where's this film going to go? Well, like my boy J-Dog says, Unforgiven is one of the greatest, if not the greatest Westerns of all time. It took Best Picture and Best Director. Clint Eastwood. Now that is a leader. That is a man of influence. I have nothing but deep reverence and veneration for Mr. Eastwood. The greatest leader is not necessarily the one who does the greatest things. He is the one that gets the people to do the greatest things. Ronald Reagan. Leadership is not about titles, positions, or flowcharts. It is about one life influencing another. John Maxwell. Influence is a tricky word. It's kind of like luck. You can have good influence. You can have bad influence. Obviously, the assumption assertion here is that you are influencing those in your bubble, those in your circle, those in your social sphere. You are influencing them in a way that they are cranking out their best widgets and they're asking good questions themselves. Am I doing enough? How can I increase my output? How can I make sure to remain viable and ethical 
in all of my business dealings. The following snippets are dialogue segments from the great journalism drama thriller, All the President's Men. Now you've got Dustin Hoffman and Robert Redford as Woodward and Bernstein, two investigative journalists. Well, they have a boss at their paper, and his name is Ben Bradley. Well, Ben Bradley, in my opinion, stole the movie. But he has these great telling dialogues with his subordinates, and you get the impression that Ben Bradley, just like Arnold Schwarzenegger in the first five minutes of that movie Predator, clearly is competent, he's got compassion, he asks good, curious questions, and he cares about his peeps. If Ben Bradley, after reading a little bit of this, feels synonymous to you with your current manager, then great. You're probably just where you need to be, audience. But if your manager is severely lacking and there is a great lacuna between Ben Bradley and your current manager, maybe it's time for a switch up. So here's Ben Bradley talking to them when they are on the fringe of this great Watergate scandal international news breaking story. You know the results of the latest Gallup poll? Half the country never even heard of the word Watergate. Nobody gives a shiz. You're both probably a little tired, right? And they both nod in response. You should be. You've been under a lot of pressure. So go home, have a nice hot bath, rest up 15 minutes if you want before you get your A-stars back in gear. Because we're under a lot of pressure too. And you put us there. Not that I want it to worry you. Nothing's riding on you except <laughs> the First Amendment of the Constitution, plus the freedom of the press, plus the reputation of a hundred-year-old paper, plus the jobs of the 2,000 people who work here. But none of that counts as much as this. You F up again, and I'm going to lose my temper. I promise you, you don't want me to lose my temper. Ben Bradley, that was terrific. Now, there's another sequence here where you've got Howard Simmons and Carl Bernstein talking, and then Ben Bradley comes in at the end. So Howard Simmons. Then can we use their names? Bernstein. No. And then Ben Bradley. God D stars. When is somebody going to go on the record in this story? You guys are about to write a story that says the former attorney general, the highest ranking law enforcement officer in this country is a crook. Just be sure you're right. See, he understands the risks, but in the end, he's putting a lot of trust in his subordinates. I work for a company where our supervisors would not trust us to get the appropriate amount of chairs for a meeting. It's that ridiculous, people. Another dialogue. Ben Bradley talking to Bob Woodward. So Ben Bradley. How much can you tell me about Deep Throat? How much do you need to know? Do you trust him? Yeah. I can't do the reporting for my reporters, which means I have to trust them. And I hate trusting anybody. Run that, baby. Trust, audience. You were hired because the company sees something in you. In my case, you were college educated, you cleared all the background checks, and especially in my case, I have been doing good, diligent work for that organization for 11 years. And then when it came time to give you authority to handle your individual files, they were overseeing you like an overseer on a plantation in Savannah, Georgia. They gave the smallest possible authority levels. Why? Clearly, it's a trust issue. This will not stand. It's pathetic. Last dialogue from All the President's Men. This is the best. So you've got Bradley talking to some of his equivalent colleagues that are, you know, maybe very close to him in power. Bradley has started typing something, and then Simmons comes in. What's this, Bradley? My non-denial denial. We're not printing a retraction? And then the camera does a close-up on Bradley. He thinks for a long time. He looks out at all of his news people. And then finally he says what I consider to be the best line of the movie. F stars it. Let's stand by the boys. Ah. 
everything is riding on the line. Everything uh, in the aforementioned, all of these concerns about the Constitution, the American people, all of these employees that work for this news program. And he's saying, we're going to, we're going to stand by the boys. I can tell you that that never happened in my former organization. This is not all frowns and crybabies here, okay? I did have a manager or two that I did have at least a modicum of respect for. One of their initials was JK. He was fair. He was honest. He was likable and he was reasonable, but he was a long time ago. I did not have a real stand up supervisor, ironically, until my first supervisor in subrogation. We'll just call him Stevie Weavy. But Stevie Weavy was honest, he was sharp, and I had respect for him because he knew the job and he promoted himself through the proper channels of diligent work and indefatigable returns on what he was asked to do. So I can tell you that I did have respect for him, but he wasn't my supervisor for long because the powers that be decided, this is going to be your crucible falsetto. We are going to have you deal with these Nimrods and these F-Stars tards because that is what you deserve as you are growing and further developing as a man. I don't know, but I did have a few supervisors that I did have respect for, but they were few and far between. They ain't no dime a dozen, okay? Relevant research. There's an article, 20 Leadership Qualities That Make a Great Leader, with tips, by Aaron Wyke. This was a recent document, just in the last few years. Aaron Wyke is a career coach and lecturer at, oh, look at that, the University of Texas at Austin. I'm going to go over some, not all, it's a lot of information. You take number one. Now, I don't know if this is like the seven deadly sins where like pride is the worst and then all of the other sins kind of trail in line behind pride. But number one is listed here as accountability. Now, as you know, I, I devoted not one, but two chemo hawk sessions to buzzsaw words, buzzsaw words, and I hate buzzsaw words. But sometimes when you're talking about business, you have to use business oriented words. Accountability. That sounds a little bit like ownership, doesn't it? Wham, bam, cam. They want the manager to take accountability. Well, how about that? Taking ownership of responsibilities and positive and negative outcomes is key to effective leadership. Let me ask you, dear listeners, does your manager take responsibility both for their failures and for their wins? I wonder. Leaders should be able to take responsibility for their team's work as well as their own. Now, that is a key differentiation because sometimes I'm sure you've seen this at your company where a manager will have an idea. Now, whether that idea was stolen or whether it originated with them, like they're the progenitor of that idea, remains to be known. But some managers get focused on this idea because it's their baby. They gave birth to it. They carried it in the womb for nine months and they delivered it. And now this baby is crucial and they will not tolerate any besmirching or aspersions cast on their baby's idea. So to put it in practical terms, this has probably happened where you're in a meeting and a manager is really pushing something, like let's say calling every customer, and you're thinking, I don't know. I mean, so you raise your, you raise your query in the, in the meeting. Do we really have to call all of these customers? Yes, you must call every customer. You know, like Noah's Ark, like in The Simpsons making a mockery of it where you've got the Lord's voice in the clouds and you've got Noah. Noah, you are to construct an ark and put two of every creature. And he's like, even dung beetles? And then there's lightning in the sky, especially dung beetles. These managers take this to heart because now they see you as a threat to their baby. Because remember, Podians, I don't know how your curriculum is with your own advancement and how you rank yourself, but one crucial component of what it's like in a white-collar environment is you have to create ideas, and those ideas have to resonate across the organization as a whole. That's how you gauge the value and the substance of your ideas. So if you've got a manager who crafted or stole an idea, and they're pushing it hard, every time you ask a legitimate question, 
that attempts to possibly undermine their baby, they are going to take umbrage and they are going to retaliate with violence if necessary. So I say if a manager is allowing their personal thoughts on their own meeting to infiltrate every part and parcel of their decision making, they're not expressing accountability and they're not a good manager. They are an inferior F-star is superior. Active listening. Successful leaders should be able to give but also receive feedback from team members and listen. To actively listen, it's kind of a psychological buzzsaw term, a leader can listen to the words being spoken but also understand the meaning behind them. To me, this sounds like context. It's important that they have accountability and now for number two, we'll say context. Courage. Now we're going to get to courage later but for purposes of this article, effective leaders should have the courage to do what is in the best interest of the team and company at all times. Now, if we parse just that one statement, it doesn't sound like the manager should be focused too much, if at all, on themselves. Because again, once you voluntarily enter a leadership role, it's not about you anymore. It's about the people that you represent, you are a liaison to. There may be times when leaders need to make unpopular or difficult decisions. So having courage can help them accept the difficulty of their role. Okay, that sounds reasonable. Communication is an articulate and positive style creates a clear path for the rest of the team, project, or meeting you are leading to follow. Good communication skills include listening effectively to the needs and expectations of others while also expressing your own. Camo is a piss-poor example of a communicator. He spoke in riddles. He often could not give you a response without checking with 15 people. He had no confidence. And that led to frustrating. Frustrating is almost euphemistic at this point. But he severely lacked communication. And that lack of communication should have been his undoing. But instead, I think like the hunchback of Notre Dame, the company just feels so bad for him, they refuse to let him go. But they should. Flexibility. Ah, now, is your supervisor a yoga instructor? Are they a contortionist? Think about it, audience. A flexible leader can adjust and maintain ownership of the team, project, or meeting as needed. They are open, open, like a penis flytrap, to new ideas and change as long as it moves the team forward flexibility, not rigidity. Focus. A good leader sets a practical vision and suitable achievable targets. I remember, like I told you, my company, they had something called the 2020 plan, which meant that, and because this is only about three years out at the time, but their expected accomplishment was in three years time at 2020, they were going to double their business. Huh. They abandoned that project altogether. Why? Because it wasn't an achievable target and it wasn't a practical vision. Growth mindset. Okay. I hate this term. It's more buzzsaw than usual, but it basically just says leaders do well when they adopt a growth mindset. Circumstances can change. A project, challenge, or issue can arise. Leaders consider that technology may have changed or personal issues may arise for the team. If they can keep a growth mindset, they can overcome challenges to progress towards goals. I say just keep a positive approach, and the more positive you can remain, it is going to effectively rub off on your subordinates. I've seen it. I know it's true. Optimism, that ties in with a growth mindset. Passion, blah, blah, blah. Passion, passion of the Christ. Passion, who cares? Patience. Ah, now patience is basically one of the seven holy virtues. Effective leaders know that mistakes, miscommunications, and failures are part of the workplace. If they can exude patience, they can help their team overcome workplace errors. I have seen managers exhibit patience, and I have seen managers that don't even know how to spell it. Lastly, we will do, ah, here's a good one. Self-awareness. Remember I talked about looking in the mirror? Why am I always talking about looking in the mirror? No, not because I'm narcissist. It's because you have to be self-aware, both in work and in life. You have to be aware of your strengths and your own temperament. Remember, I was talking about that episode of Deadwood, that great Western show, where Bullock 
lost his temper and he beat the shiz out of the father of the woman he was banging, he had to then ask for that man to get protection from the cavalry that was in town because he was aware of the dangers of his own temperament. Successful leaders express the skills and knowledge required for a certain role in an organization or a specialty. They know their abilities and limitations, underline limitations, and advocate for themselves based on their self-awareness. Effective leaders make reflection a priority to understand their own strengths and weaknesses. Now, when I say reflect on themselves, I don't mean, oh, their monthly review that they write up and then they pass along to Tadpole. No, I'm talking about real reflection. What have I done this month? What kind of an impact am I making for those people that are truly relying on me? How to improve your leadership skills. Okay, one, you have to identify your leadership style. Now, I remember, and my boy Brooks appreciated this previous episode, where it was called managerial math. Your manager is either a right angle, an obtuse angle, or an acute angle. Well, those are just three styles. I'm sure that it's infinite in number. But you have to identify what type of leader you are, what type of leader you want to be, and then you have a foundation to build upon. Define areas of strength and areas for improvement. That's one way to improve your leadership skills. Asking for professional feedback from trusted colleagues or mentors. How many times did your manager accomplish two things? But these two things have to be in tandem. First, how often does your manager ask you to tell them how they're doing? But just as important, number two, do you feel like you can speak candidly? Or if you tell the manager, even using politically correct language, yeah, I think you suck or your performance is severely lacking in these areas. Do you have the faith that you will still have a job the following morning? Good questions. This tells the manager to find a mentor, not just a mentor like grandma, because grandma has been with the company for a hundred years, but actually finding a mentor that can complement your own weaknesses. That's what I say. And lastly, be patient. It says becoming an effective leader can take months, years, or even decades. Okay. To me, if it's taken you more than 10 years to become an effective leader, you were never meant for leadership. Now, does this sound familiar? Does it? Hmm. I don't drop a lot of novel references or autobiography references, but I just finished reading this book that was a gift from a parent-in-law because I wanted to finish the material before I visited with them. And this book is called Fierce Valor, The True Story of Ronald Spears and His Band of Brothers by Jared Frederick and Eric Dorr. Now, for those of you that are familiar with Band of Brothers, the 101st Airborne that basically paratrooped into Normandy had a full-scale invasion of Normandy, France. Fascinating accounts. What the 101st Airborne Division saw throughout the course of the trail end of World War II was fascinating. But if you've watched Band of Brothers on HBO, to me, the most, like the quintessential, complex, man of few words that you're dying to know the full story of is Ronald Spears, portrayed by the great Matthew Settle for purposes of the show. Now, here's a quote that's at the first page of the book, Fierce Valor. The essential American soul is hard, isolate, stoic, and a killer. D.H. Lawrence. Now, Ronald Spears was Scottish-born, but he was five foot eight. Ah, height. Now, height is important. This reminds me of the fact that James Madison, who was the father of our Constitution, he is hailed as the father of the Constitution because he had a pivotal role in drafting and promoting the Constitution. It would be fair to say that he wrote the Constitution, or at least large sections of it. James Madison was the shortest president at five feet four inches. Not all managers are going to be tall, lengthy drinks of water potions. So to be five foot eight as Ronald Spears was, or five foot four as Mr. Madison was, and to not have the Napoleon syndrome or the short man syndrome, that's quite a talent in and of itself. So don't let a person's height deceive you. Spears started, lo and behold, in a white collar organization. 
He was a financier at an insurance company prior to his military service. Is it a coincidence that he would rather make a career out of the military after seeing active combat than returning to being a desk jockey for an insurance company? I digress. But from the outset of his officer days, he possessed a natural ability to command a situation. Former comrades Majors Driscoll and Menix had a profound impact on Spears' approach to tackling and navigating future complexities. A man must have speed, adept capacities to analyze, strategize, react, and move are basic precepts of military management. They all believed, Spears included, that physical strength was the cornerstone of all leadership. He would discuss and agree with his future superior, Winters. Spears believed that any platoon leader who lacked the fortitude to exert himself in the face of danger was unworthy of the bars on his collar. Must be cool under conflict, or C-U-C, cuck. <laughs> I know Brooks is probably laughing at that one, but cuck, cool under conflict. Now, to me, with the physical strength approach, how can you listen to a supervisor who's fat, unhealthy, bad teeth, and disgusting? They're not even living a good example in life. Obviously, it would be easier to secure the respect of your subordinates if you are an impressive specimen, both in your managerial duties and in your life choices. Just saying. But Spears was a tried-and-true, combat-experienced commander. And I would like to say that if I'm at work and some shiz goes down and you got some active shooter situation, I want you to think right now, audience, as unfortunately active shooter situations seem to be becoming the norm, not the exception. But I want you to think about your direct line superior right now. And if the shiz hit the fan, would they be accomplishing these heroic feats? Breaking out a window, hitting the shooter in the face with a stapler, diving in front of you to deflect any bullets that may come your way? Would you feel that they knew what was going on, they had situational awareness, and they could control the narrative to an extent? Would they? Or do you feel, oh well, I'm just screwed? Something to think about. So there's a scene in Band of Brothers. It's absolutely fantastic. First Sergeant Carwood Lipton, and he's talking to Winters about his concerns about Lieutenant Dyke. Now talking to one of my comrades at work, we would often compare Tadpole to Lieutenant Dyke. The idea being that he had no real experience, he was a buffoon, and for all we know, it was either cronyism or nepotism or some unfair, almost cheating way that he got into the position of power that he has since found himself in. Carwood Lipton is talking to Winters and he's talking about Dyke and he says, I have every confidence in the men, but on the other hand, I have no confidence in our CO, that's commanding officer. Lieutenant Dyke is an empty uniform, Captain. He's just, he's not there, sir. And then Winters, well, he'll be there tomorrow. I understand he'll be there physically, but tomorrow will be the real deal. He'll have to lead those men. He's going to have to make decisions, sir, and I think he's going to get a lot of easy company men killed. Thank you, Sergeant. That'll be all. I said what I had to say. Empty uniform. Does that ring a bell? Like empty F-Star suit? Oh, I know how you feel, Carwood Lipton, because we had our own Lieutenant Dykes in our office. I'm sorry to say. Now, here they are, and it's the Battle of Foy, which is basically right, right along there with the Battle of the Bulge. And you've got Dyke out there. And this is shown in the show, and it's backed up by this book, Fierce Valor. But you've got Dyke out there in the snow trying to attack this German-infiltrated town of Foy. And he looks like an F-Star's tard. He's just sitting there blubbering. Uh, 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 I don't know what to do. Men are getting killed. Mortars are exploding. And there he is in the middle of this field. And he just totally stupefied. And he has no clue what to do or how to lead. He can't do anything. And his men are begging him to make just make a decision. Well, Winters is keeps telling him to move forward. 
and he just won't move forward. He's just sitting there like a deer with no idea of north, south, east, west, no clue. Winters starts running out there to just relieve him, but then immediately it is, get back here. Winters is dragged back because Winters is basically like a battalion leader at that point. So he has responsibilities to far more many men than the men getting slaughtered. It's like, I understand your attachment to easy, but you have to stay here, Winters. So then Winters just looks out at the men and says, Spears, get yourself over here. Go relieve Dyke and take that attack on in. Well, Spears just runs out. He was a track star, by the way. He was like an all-star track star in high school. But Spears runs out. He kind of prances out, holding his Thompson machine gun. And then he just runs out to Lieutenant Dyke, who's pissed himself. And he just says very calmly in the middle of this hail of gunfire, I'm taking over. I want mortars and grenade launchers on that building until it's gone. When it's gone, I want first to go straight in. Forget going around. Everybody else, follow me. And then what did they do? He linked up with E Company. Ugh, I'm not saying that your supervisor has to run behind enemy lines with Germans shooting at them and winter camo fatigues. But man, wouldn't it be nice if your manager could just make a decision? And just, if it's a good decision, then they deserve the proper credit. But if it's a bad decision, then they own it. They take ownership of that decision. They don't then pass the ownership on to you, and they won't even let you sublet. They just say, you take ownership of my mistake. Are you F-stars kidding me? Personal nugget time. Because you are such a patriotic audience. And speaking of patriotism, I have a personal nugget that touches on that very thing. So there I was in Utah, near Salt Lake City. Technically, I was in Park City. But Utah is a beautiful, beautiful place. I know what you're thinking. Salt Lake City has a lot of salt, and there are too many Mormons. Well, those may both be true. But what they do have is splendid scenery. There I was, river rafting, whitewater rafting. And there were a couple of people in the raft, and we weren't sure exactly how we would feel about this couple. They were from Chicago. They were tough. Well, come to find out, the guy is like a naval intelligence soldier. He's been in the military for many years. He was educating me on his worldly gallivants. I mean, he's seen like five continents or something crazy. Because as you know, when you're in the Navy, you get to see a lot of scenery. You get to see a lot of international real estate. But I asked him point blank. I said, of all the places that you've seen, of all the places that you've traveled, what is the best? Like, just what is the best place that you've lived? And he said, for example, he's like, you know, Greece is very beautiful. Okay, don't get me wrong. You've got the Aegean, you've got these volcanoes, like it's very pretty, but they do have running water, but depending on where you are in Greece, they have issues with the septic. They don't necessarily have an accomplished septic system. So people don't flush their toilet paper. They wipe their posterior and just throw the paper in waste baskets. So everywhere you go, it smells like human feces. I have been at five-star restaurants all over the world, but at the end of the day, you know what I think is the best? America. Why? Because America has creature comforts. America has safety. America gets the best cuts of steak. When they have these cow parts, who do you think is going to get the first choice on the meat? America. Because America has the money. So he says, I've been to very nice restaurants, but the best steak I've had is in America. So this boy loves America, but he also has seen the other side. He was helping rebuild roads and infrastructure in Somalia, of all places. So he knows he has something that I don't have, or he has more of it, and that's perspective. Perspective, audience. Perspective. God bless America. This was extremely enjoyable, you valued listeners. As you unwind with superiority, the daily grind of inferiority, with mundane, moronic, monotonous, inferior superiors, know that you have many fellow soldiers in your corporate foxhole, looking to you to step up, take over, replace that replaceable manager with your irreplaceable talent, wit, and cool command of trying, taxing, WC complications that will no doubt emerge. Tune in, stick around, and remain near. 
all apropos prepositions I think to vocalize for your next dose of magical medicine. Chapter 40. White Collar, Black Belt. The Toxicity of a Crisp White Collar Committee. Always smile. Fiends revile. And if you think yourself happy at your miserable post, you may be waiting in denial. Also, audience, I will be having my first Whiskey Wednesday with Wham Bam Cam very soon. That will be a whole nother Chemo Hawk Session book that I will be starting for your auditory pleasure. Falsetto F-Stars out. <laughs>